Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, as per usual, is Ellie Mistal. This is the worst country in the world. <laughs> I Somalia begs to differ, but I, I hear uh, I, I hear you. So we are back. It's a new year. We handed out all of our awards on our last show, and now we can uh, begin boldly another year in the life of the law. Might it's be exciting. the last year. I mean, okay. So anyway, we ready to go? Are you going to complain about something that you haven't just incessantly bitched about for a long time, and even though you have no capacity to do anything about it? I mean, you understand how I'm stuck, right? Like, I, I kind of, the only thing worth complaining about is the only thing that anybody ever complains about anymore, because the it's the only thing that's happening. Right? Yeah, the weather. <laughs> the weather. The pick play on the goal line for Clemson. No, the version of the complaint that I want to lodge today, I guess, is the only way of saying it, is particularly with who I would describe as candy-ass liberals who keep watching Donald Trump do bad things and kind of wait for the Constitution or the law to show up and save them like it's freaking Superman's going to drop in and save the day. That's not how it's going to happen. I am so sick of reading a news story and having some effing liberal tell me, well, is that constitutional? Of course it is. Of course it is. The Constitution is a short flawed slaveholding document. Of course it can be weaponized against us if it's put in the wrong hands and it's being put in the wrong hands of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Of course the Constitution... So yesterday, when we're recording this yesterday, the big thing was the emoluments clause where Donald Trump is clearly going to get improper benefits while being president. That's absolutely going to happen. And people are like, oh, well, that's not constitutional. Of course it is. Of course it is. Actually read the freaking emoluments clause. Article 1, section 9, read it. What does it say? It says basically Trump cannot be declared king of all England. Okay. But it doesn't really say anything about who can stay in his hotel or what foreign governments can funnel money through his fake charities. It doesn't say anything about that. The Constitution is not coming to save us. Okay. So, um, anywho, I think it does say a lot more about that. I think the, the question, which actually a very interesting question, is whether or not the emoluments clause, which I think it does suggest that you can't get bribes, whether or not profits that people do through your business, like to the extent that you end up with that money, is that kind of a form of bribe? And I think that's an interesting interpretive question. But I also Trump, in his press conference basically said, hey, everybody look at me. I was offered a two billion dollar bribe. and I didn't take it. That was interesting to just kind of volunteer when no one was asking for it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's the interpretive question that could be interesting. I don't know as though it's like a lot of political things, I think that the political doctrine will keep anyone from ever actually litigating that issue. But I, that's the interesting angle on it. Anyway, so with that done, mercifully. Yeah, that's our um, weekly look into the horribleness of my life. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, so let's begin what we're actually talking about today, which is, you know, ironically, how the law can come in and save people from doing things. And in this case, how it can do that in in kind of the intellectual property sphere. We don't talk about that enough. And we also 
when we do tend to talk about it very legally because it is thinking like a lawyer, but we thought it'd be interesting to look at some of these issues with somebody who looks at it from the more practical perspective of how intellectual property works. We're going to call her Phil Practical now? That's interesting. Sort of. I mean, yeah, like, well, actually... Utile, I guess we'll use because that's going to become interesting. Uh, that's going to become a factor in what we talk about. Um, so we have Tyler McCall here from Fashionista. I don't know your present title. So deputy, deputy editor. Deputy editor. Yeah, uh, we've had boom. You know, we've had all kinds of title changes around here. I'm now a plenipotentiary. Yeah. So welcome to the show. We're going to talk about fashion. You know, indirectly and a lot of uh, a lot of stuff about intellectual property. So how are you? You know, not as mad as you, but, you know, all right. How are you? How do I look today? Because <laughs> often, as regular listeners know, we start with some uh, comments about whether or not I'm dressed for the podcast, because um, we like to make the point that, unlike most of our listeners, I am not required to look professional to do my job. But I tried for you today, so what would, you, what would your assessment of my professional attire be? Notice the pants you are wearing pants today, which is Boom. a huge relief. Boom. Um, you're also wearing that orange waffle knit. Is it a sweater or is it a shirt that you're wearing that I've seen you wear? I think every time I've seen it's you in technically, the office. It's technically a sweater, I guess. It's my sweater. It's huh. got minimal stains. <laughs> I, yeah. This yeah. is relative. Everything is relative. <laughs> so. It's my sweater. I've had this since, I want to say, like 2011. Would never have guessed <laughs> that it had only been, what, six years? Yeah, that's yeah. about right. Yeah. It looks like it's been through the ringer a little bit, but it's a good color for you. I'm a big fan of orange. That's a big Met color. What about my protest pick? The this protest is, this pick. is something that I've, that I've been doing over the objection of pretty much everybody in my family. I've grown my fro out a bit and I've started wearing my protest pick. I like it. Yeah, I'm that, for it. That protest is probably going to, you know be very effectual and change a lot. It's better than whining, oh, the Constitution. <laughs> He's unconstitutional. Somebody stab him. I'm, do I'm doing more with my pick than those people are. Fair enough. I, an interesting comparison. So let's, uh, well. Yeah, so the. the this the, was Ellie's idea. So he kind of has the, he has a grand vision. There's God not a lot us. of, um, yeah, there, there's not a ton of like preparation when these are Ellie's ideas. So like we're all kind of <laughs> flying uh, by the seat of what he wants to talk about. The, the first thing that I want to talk about, and the reason why I thought Tyler would be great to, to have on this week, is that one of my favorite cases um, from this term in the Supreme Court was decided. Um, the Apple v. Samsung case came down yes. very strongly on the side of Samsung. So from my perspective, that's a ruling that says um, that decreases the amount of protection people have for design patents. If you're not totally aware of the issue, um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing here, but essentially Apple says that the way that it designed its phone, not just the utility of the phone, but the actual, the utility of the design of its, of its phone was entitled to robust protection equal to the entire profits of the Samsung phone, which had already been ruled to have copied um, the iPhone design, um, except for the whole not blowing up part. Lower courts agreed, the case went to the Supreme Court, and Apple, for one of the few times in their long litigation with Samsung, got smacked the hell down, where the courts basically did not give it the enhanced protection of its design patents. I think that's a problem. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I thought the decision was correct. I was actually shocked at how correct it was. The discussion is about, obviously, Apple makes a big deal out of saying how sleekly designed they are, and it's like this 
thin, clear, black monolith that came straight out of the beginning of 2001. And they say that that decision to design a smart computer-based phone to look like that is their thing, and they have a design patent on it. And their position was, which I think most people would agree, indeed the court seems to largely agree, the difference is their position is that even though Samsung made a completely different product, the fact that it also happened to be thin, translucent, and reflective, and black meant Curved that, edges. With curved edges Big meant deal. that the entirety of every cent of sales of Samsung phones deserved to go to Apple, which seems like that can't possibly be the truth. So the court agreed with Joe's Neanderthal take on it, but a lot of people in your industry, Tyler, actually agreed with Apple. Yes. Where do you come down? So obviously with the caveat that I am not a lawyer. Congratulations. I've dated a few, which leads me to believe I'm smart and qualified enough to talk about this. Um, <laughs> but I spoke with Susan Scafidi, who runs the Fashion Law Institute. And the main problem in this case is that in America, fashion design has very few protections available to them. So Susan, in the past few years, has really taken to helping designers find the few protections that they do have and try and take advantage of them as much as possible. One of them includes this design patent situation. And now they sort of feel like, well, we might be screwed. Because there are so few things that deter people from knocking off designers. You might say, what's the big deal about that? It's their job. I mean, it's a creative industry. And for a lot of these companies, they're smaller companies. They don't have the rights of a Christian Louboutin or a Louis Vuitton or any of these people, a Chanel. I didn't um, know those were two different people, actually. But <laughs> anyway. And, uh, you know, you're looking at, and a recent example of this is there's this shoe company called Brother Veli's. They produce in Africa. She's really bent on, her name's Aurora. She's really bent on making sure everything is produced ethically. She has this whole business acumen. And her shoes became popular. You would see them on street style or in magazine editorials. And they probably cost, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of six, $700, which is, of course, expensive for a shoe, depending on who you're talking to. And Zara knocked them off for 50 bucks. That's a problem because not only have you knocked off her design as a small business owner, you've also totally removed any of the ethical aspect of the design as well. Right. I mean, that's obviously sort of an extreme example. You have designers like Alexander Wang seeking these design patents for other purposes, and he's a bigger business. But the idea is that the, I don't know if it's like puritanical, but America does not really see fashion as art in the same way that the Europeans do, or even some Asian cultures, Japan, for example. That's an interesting distinction. So you would put yourself on the side of generally more robust protections for design patents. Yes. And Joe, you would be against that because you think... Well, I mean, I think I think the issue is more definitional here. Uh, the The difference between knocking off the design of the shoe and saying that a complex piece of machinery that has multiple different components, many of which are actually patented can be completely invalidated by the infringement of one design patent, I thought was ridiculous. And I think that you can say they breached the design of it and they 
are liable for that, but that doesn't mean that the invention of chip X within it, all of that money isn't money that belongs to Samsung. And I think that's what that case was about. Obviously, fashion's in a different situation than that. There's probably not, Zara probably wasn't putting some completely different product within that that design when they knocked it off. Like it was still a shoe at the end of the day, right? Right. And, and it I went think on your feet and helped you walk. Yes. Right. And I think that's the real issue. Then I why I don't think the Apple Samsung case is a problem here because I think that the court can still look at that knockoff and say things like, well, you derived all of your benefit from the fact that it's a knockoff. It's not that you had something else and you also borrowed this one design element and and you know we'll only charge you for that infringement. Like the the borrowing that design element was the whole knockoff, and that's why I don't think this probably applies. And I also think obviously this is where we have another level of disagreement. I think legally, Ellie, I think that that's an instance where trade dress protection could easily be a thing, depending Ugh. on how obvious it is as a marker that these shoes look this way because they come from her. I'm going to put this out there, and I have talked to uh, Joe a little bit about this before, so I'm not as interested in his uh, – sorry, I'm only as interested in his opinion as I usually am. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm much more interested in your opinion, so feel free to tweet at me what you think about this statement. I believe that it's possible to favor a robust protection of design patents, as I do, while holding trade dress in relative contempt. I think almost no protection should be accrued, given to – Trade dress restrictions, I think those are stupid more often than not, and I barely get them to begin with. But you want to go on and say that you go go on. Defend defend a red soul uh, that was somehow go ahead. Um, amazingly, that was the exact one I was going amazingly, to go with, one of the right? Dumbest thing. Right, because obviously it's that like means the, something yeah. in your industry. And yes. and to the extent that it means that thing, it deserves protection. People knocking it off are stealing that is not something that is design patentable just making it red is not sufficiently ingenuity to uh maybe a design patent, you know why because there's absolutely no utility in painting the soles of your shoe red well it's just a stupid thing some people do well right i mean design patents can't be utility anyway like they they may have utility aspects to them but they to get even design patent protection it must be stuff that is severable from being purely utilitarian. But I mean, that's why I, I think that trade dress has a value. You, I think even more so than some of these design patent elements, these are decisions that people make, brands make to say, my brand looks like this. Everyone goes down to a few blocks from here to buy knockoffs that look like something for a reason because it conveys some insight. Uh, yeah, some status of what the brand is, and that's why you've got to protect that. And I'm supposed to cry that it's okay that small businessmen on Canal Street can, can make a living selling bourgeois status to tourists from Kansas, and that somehow makes Louis Vuitton feel bad. Like, I'm supposed to care about that? I'm I supposed mean, to I give can that give you my whole spiel about how uh, rip-offs and knockoffs fuel the drug industry, child slavery. There's like fuel a whole the drug industry. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Please. Where do you think these come from? I mean, not every single one, obviously, but it's a huge thing. Yeah. Louis Vuitton, I don't know if they care about that as much as the fact that they want to protect their specific brand, which is its own thing. But 
I mean, yeah, there's an argument to be made that it's morally reprehensible to buy a knockoff just because you want to look like you have a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes. That's it's, a different argument than what you're talking it's about. It's morally reprehensible. That's fine. It's morally reprehensible to buy a knockoff, but it's not morally reprehensible to charge $600 for a shoe. That's, that's what you're going to come at me with, It's right? not the only shoe, right? How is it not morally reprehensible to charge the kinds of prices that we're talking about some of these high-end couture designers charge, right? $1,300 for a man purse. $600 for a fucking pair of high heels. Are you kidding me? That's that's a problem to me. And so if a slightly less economically um, secure person wants to look like they have that completely bougie status symbol, but they can get it for 60 bucks on Canal Street, how is that the moral problem? I, I honestly have no clue where any of the consistency in your stances are. I mean, like, what the hell? I don't understand why people wanted to pay slightly less for the Samsung under that logic. Like, there, there's no purpose to any intellectual property rights under what you just said. But to Tyler's point, which I think she probably has more data at the tip of her fingers to talk about, is like, there is a pronounced problem with knockoffs and things like child slavery and so on and so forth. And I know this because I did represent in a case a completely independent, not any of the sellers, but represented the, the federal government, the U.S. Attorney's Office made a real crackdown on even just people who have property interests on Canal Street to the extent that it's part of this. And it's it was a, a focus of the administration because of these links. So you're saying you work for the man to kick storefronts off the street? Like, what are you saying? What, what was yeah. your... Yeah, because storefronts were participating in the child slavery movement. And yeah, we thought that was bad as a country. I know, like, when you talk about the America's oh, worst country ever, I don't, I think I like it slightly more than your one where you want children to be enslaved. <laughs> To be clear, so listeners. that somebody in Kansas can have a cheaper bag. That's I, your stance. I do not support child slavery. I feel like that needs to be <laughs> said at this point. Um, beyond the drug slavery aspect yes. of it, why do you think trade dress deserves as much protection as, as it can get? Why should you be able to charge $700 for a pair of shoes? Now, depending on the designer, there's also a lot of material goods the material quality is better right the design quality is better the product is manufactured probably i would imagine not for everybody but for some in a more ethical way which means you're paying fair wages to your workers you're doing all this kind of stuff right and when you have that kind of stuff happening and you're charging that kind of premium you want to have a reason to charge that kind of premium that is more obvious. So Christian Louboutin, obviously the easiest example of this, the red soul situation. There are people who buy it because there are other high quality heel shoe designers, right? There's like Manolo Blahnik, there's Jimmy Choo. People buy Louboutin because when you see that red soul, that means something. That says something about you, and in selling that, they want to protect that image. It's not really that different from Chanel doesn't want you to call a jacket in a review of another brand Chanel-esque. That's not obviously trade dress, but it's kind of in that same vein. They want to keep this is what it means to be this brand and we're going to charge you an insane amount of money sometimes for this stuff, but you're going to spend it because 
this is what it says. Now, if you want to argue about spending that kind of money, that's capitalism, baby. I, yeah. I would simply argue that, yeah, it does say something. It does, it does say something about you yeah. if you're going to spend that money. It says something about me that I have my sweater. But, but note that you have that sweater, and I think that's the key to it. You can opt out of the ridiculous consumption mindset by saying, I am not going to buy this thing. Buying a knockoff of that thing contains all of the moral reprehensibility of supporting the idea that people should have $700 shoes, but does it in a way that's even worse. Well, note that I put in my hypo, the person buying this is from Kansas, which is part of the country that I can't stand, so... You were saying that there's no consistency. There's consistency. Maybe it's just not easy to see. Basically, just strong line against Kansas. <laughs> Except he was just p- protecting their right to buy things for a, se- a second ago. I, there really is just nothing coming out consistently over here. Trade dress and child, <laughs> child slavery are not the only <laughs> moral issues in fashion these days. One of the big ones is kind of going back to where I started how the fashion industry is going to deal with the fact that the world is a terrible place. Yes. Fashionista has taken a very interesting stand um, yes. regarding Melania Trump and their coverage of her. Would you like to? Uh, yes. We've spent, not the past eight years, I would say, but a good chunk of the last administration covering Michelle Obama's wardrobe choices pretty extensively because she has done a lot for the American fashion industry, actually. From small brands to big name brands like J. Crew, she's launched designer careers. Jason Wu is a designer that she wore to the inauguration. And she's done so much that there's an active interest in what she wears. Melania Trump doesn't currently seem to have that kind of interest. She dresses well. I mean, she's worn some great designer goods. But to my knowledge, it's stuff that she buys off the rack that she on Canal Street? picks. I am sure that she couldn't find Canal Street on a map. <laughs> um, so we have just decided that unless she does something that is particularly newsworthy, what she chooses to wear to the inauguration, for example, will likely be newsworthy. We will not be covering her with the same kind of fervor that we covered Michelle Obama. Is that just because she's not, as you put it, making as much news within the industry? Is it also an effort? It's also because um, Donald Trump is a generally terrible human being. Any chance to not make him seem less terrible is one I think worth taking. High five. Thank you. I respect that. But what do you think about, I mean, this issue came up in the Washington Post today. What do you think about actual fashion designers choosing or not choosing to dress Melania or Ivanka. Right. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's your right as a business person to choose who you do and don't dress. I think what will be more interesting is to see that I think she'll probably just continue buying stuff that she wants to wear. And seeing how designers handle that will be more interesting to me if she chooses to buy Let's just say a Jason Wu gown for the inauguration for no reason other than the fact that Michelle Obama already did it. She kind of uh, likes doing that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, let's I say she, she does that. that. And, you know, how do they respond to that? That's what I'm interested in. Do they promote the fact? Is it going to be which designers are promoting? She wore something from Dolce and Gabbana recently. One of the designers of that promoted that she wore it. 
that's more interesting to me than whether they choose to dress her or not because historically speaking until very recently first ladies bought their dresses off the rack that was part of what was discussed in the washington post article when did that change i don't know exactly when that changed certainly michelle obama but like jackie o bought stuff off the rack for the inauguration i don't think that there's anything wrong with buying stuff off the rack i think if you want to like show support for American retailers, which are struggling a lot right now, that's a way that you could show support. I mean, there's different ways that you can do that. You know, you don't, there's no one right way to support the American fashion industry. I mean, ultimately, the decision, if they came to somebody and the decision not to dress them while there's, you know, capitalist reasons why that's okay, ultimately, there's the quandary where how is that any different than Baker's not baking cakes for gay weddings. Sure, but it's also in the same line as, I mean, they can't get anyone to perform at the inauguration. Exactly. No, and and that's the thing. And that's why, obviously, that was such a, that particular aspect was such a delicate issue was that you open up a can of worms when you you go down these sorts of uh, people doing custom services roads. I completely disagree. I think that the baker who's not, Baking a cake for a gay wedding is, besides being kind of a dick, right? Um, is denying services to American citizens based on immutable characteristics of their citizens. Yeah, citizens Donald agree. Trump is immutably a dick. No, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's, see, that's right, and that's the difference, right? See, no, he's not. Like Donald Trump could tomorrow choose to be less of a horrible human being. <laughs> Melania Trump could choose to not have married a horrible human being. And if you're not working for them. You're not providing services for them. You're not providing services for them based directly on their public choices, not their private, genetic, whatever. Right. So yeah, I think there's a huge distinction. Right. No, obviously, that that is a distinction. I, I really was trying to set up the immutable characteristic right. thing, but you <laughs> just outraged all over it. So Because I thought it was actually a pretty good little... <laughs> but, but. Yeah, you're still in the subtle... You're, you're, you're still in the subtle mocking of... The, the Trumpkins. I'm not anywhere close to that. So do you think that the industry's coverage, do you think that your website's coverage would have been very different had it gone the other way insofar as do you think that you would have covered Bill Clinton's dress choices? You know, it's hard to say because there's never been a first gentleman. Is that what we would have called him? I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Bill Clinton, I don't think we would have called him that. Uh, I mean, we don't cover a lot of men's fashion in general, so that's difficult. I think it's probably fair to say we would have covered Hillary Clinton's choices. I think that would have been a very interesting thing. Uh, I was already interested in that. What does a woman wear to an inauguration? I don't know. I may never know. She probably. I doubt you will. So you think that you would have, but just yes. to be clear, you think you would have covered Hillary Clinton's fashion choices, even though she would be actually the one in charge, and not paid all that much attention to her husband's. Yeah. There's only so many ways to cover a suit. Yeah. Have you ever tried to write about a suit, like more than twice? I mean, in fairness, I, I think there's, yeah, no, obviously not. A tie, and, maybe? Well, no, and there's there's obviously also a difference that celebrity men's fashion there's actually stuff to talk about, sure. but business but politics, think, yeah. men's fashion is entirely, no. this is the same old thing I just got off the right, you know. I don't think Bill Clinton was going to show up to the inauguration in, a, in like a brown velvet right. tuxedo exactly. like Donald Glover wore to the it, Golden Globes, right? Oh, that would have been awesome. It would, but, it, but the point is like men's fashion outside of the kind of celebrity yeah. sphere is just boring. Right. and Especially in Washington. Yeah, like exactly. 
apropos of that, let's wrap with a little hot list from Tyler about what people should be wearing to their office in 2017. What's in, what's out. I'm obviously highly qualified to talk about this because I'm wearing a sweatshirt with two balloon dogs humping. (laughs) Because obviously we work in a casual environment. But I think right now there are so many people doing really great suiting, believe it or not, for women. That's interesting. I think that you could still style it. Suiting? (laughs) For our listeners, let's let's go from first principles. What's suiting? (laughs) Uh, Well, suiting I'm getting it from context clues but is a uh, jacket <laughs> matched often with pants occasionally a skirt depending there's a lot of that happening right now I think what's been really great for me personally because I hate wearing super high heels is that low chunky heels are pretty on trend right now which means they're pretty easy to find which is good because I think they look professional. I mean, again, I don't work at a bank, so like, what do I know about looking professional? But (laughs) I've seen other professional people, and I feel like... And they all work in banks. They (laughs) all work in banks, and they all tell me I can't have any money because I buy $700 shoes. Uh, No, I, I think that that bodes really well. Do women still have to wear pantyhose in law firms? Is that still a thing? Not really. I mean, especially not in the summer. I think different places operate differently. Uh, I've never worked in a place where anyone cared all that much. Um, okay. I thought that was like a thing. No, yeah. my, wife, my wife will wear tights sometimes because it's warmer. Well, tights, yes. Do that. But like, pant- like sheer pantyhose. Close, yeah, I, I, closed toe versus open toe is still debatable. Okay. Uh, I think That's fair. I think people still have that debate. Wait, Some folks don't care. Open-toed shoes? Yeah. What's wrong with that? I mean, you know, I don't love open-toed shoes because you got to maintain like a pedicure situation that looks good. I don't know. I think there's nothing wrong with a closed-toed shoe. I like them. Are you that hot that your toes like need to be out in the world? Is it going to make that much of a difference? I don't know. I also hate. Do you sandals. see what I wear to this office as yes. soon as like frostbite is no longer a concern? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, but literally and mercifully, no one's talking about you as a model of what people should wear in a business setting. Uh, but on that subject, I, I have worked in places where that debate still rages, where people are like, well, of course, open toad is fine. And others are like, really? And that among I mean, the I, partnership. I do think it's weird that people think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. I just in my own personal life and am anti open toe. But and then for the men, is it finally time to rock the uh, bola tie? Why not? You know, <laughs> when is it not time to rock the bolo tie? For someone who hates Kansas, yeah, exactly. The right. bolo tie? Do you have one? Do you want to wear it? I do you have uh, one? Cho- I, do not I don't know if it. you saw this. Matt Lauer has made it legally acceptable for men to wear chokers. I think it's always okay because a choker. Yeah, a choker. You On didn't see this? Yeah, that's like a thing now. Really? Yeah, ASOS is selling them for men. Chokers, but for men. It's not any different than chokers for women. They just slap a different label on it and charge less. Wow. That was a gender gap joke. (laughs) (laughs) Subtlety is not not working over here. I'm still trying to get my mind around the concept. Like, why would, why would, I don't understand why women wear chokers, much less. You're already wearing the effing tie. Like, how how much more more asphyxiation do you need in your workday? Don't kink shame people. God. Just don't. There's so much kink shaming going on in this country right now, and I just think we need less of it. On that, I've got I've got nothing to follow that. 
I was just told not to kink shame. I'm done. Pick is back in the hair. Yeah. Fist raised. Yeah. I will find a way to overcome. Super. Thank you so much for walking us through this uh, trip down the fashion industry and, by extension, intellectual property. Um, Mainly it was a trip down Canal Street. Yes, uh, mainly a trip down Canal Street. Yeah. Um, so uh, with that, thanks also for listening. If you aren't already subscribed to Thinking Like a Lawyer, you should totally do that because then more people will listen to it because you'll be giving us reviews and stars and it's just a popular thing to do. You should tell people at kids' parties. It's a good conversation piece that you heard you know, somebody scream something about the law. Uh, also, you can read Above the Law, which is where we're writing. You can read Fashionista, where Tyler's writing. You can follow people on Twitter and do all those sorts of things. Give us the Twitter addresses. Yeah, uh, at Joseph Patrice, at L-E-N-Y-C, at Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Tyler. Eiffel Tyler, yes, it's that's like right. It's like Eiffel Tower, but with Tyler. Because yeah. Because I was cute and clever six years ago. I said yeah. that just to force her to have to say that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then uh, with all of that, we'll uh, talk to folks in the future. Don't kink shame. True. Don't do it. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.